Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. Here's how this podcast works. Each week we begin with about 7 to 10 minutes on the weekly parsha, hence the name 7-Minute Torah. You'll either hear me, or you'll hear me in conversation with a Jewish thought leader. After that, if you want to stick around, we often continue with a bonus interview where we talk about all things Jewish. Welcome, everyone. There is a a truism or a platitude out there that Judaism is a religion of law. You might have heard this before. You hear it in all kinds of contexts. Sometimes it's used to express that Judaism cares more about action than it does about belief. Sometimes it's a way of dividing between Jewish movements. Orthodox Jews believe in the binding force of Jewish law, and liberal Jews don't. Sometimes it's a form of anti-Semitism, differentiating the the harsh legalism of Judaism from Christianity as a religion of love. I hope it's clear that I'm not promoting or buying into any of these frameworks. What I'm trying to do is name ideas that exist out there in the ether about Judaism and law, and that are often dividing ideas. Now, law is important in Judaism. In fact, this week's Torah portion is called Mishpatim, which means laws. And what you'll find when you read through it is that it's made up of laws upon laws upon laws on all different topics. I'm going to say more about that once I welcome my guest. But first, let me say a few words about my guest. Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz is an Orthodox rabbi and an author and an activist. Now, I like having this Mishpatim conversation with him because he is in many ways a Jewish leader who defies boundaries and dualisms the dualism of ethical versus ritual, or law versus love, or reform versus orthodox. These are boundaries that, as you'll see, Rabbi Yanklowitz is working to blur or to break down. I'm going to bring him in and introduce him, and then we're going to talk Parsha for the usual seven to nine minutes. And then, as always, we'll continue our conversation, in this case, talking about how to put words of Torah into action. Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz, welcome to 7-Minute Torah. Thank you, Reb Micah. It's wonderful to be with you. So I'm going to introduce you briefly, and then we're going to jump into the Parsha. You are the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash, which is a really interesting organization that does Jewish learning and social justice work. And you are also the author of many books, including of late, several social justice commentaries on Jewish texts. But for now, if it's okay with you, let's talk Parsha. Great. So we're reading this week from Mishpatim. This portion is the revelation at Sinai, or the part that comes after the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's all about commandments. And it's got it all. There are laws of slavery, there are laws of sexuality, laws of damages and bodily injury, laws about charging interest, which I happen to know is the the focus of your podcast this week. And in the midst of all that is this passage that you wanted to talk about today. So I'm going to read it. It says, Beger lotone." You shall not wrong the stranger or oppress them, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Then it goes on to say you shall not ill-treat any widow or orphan. Rav Shmuley, what jumps out at you about that passage? What made you want to talk about that today? To me, it is just remarkable that our tradition 
does not prioritize the most powerful, but the most vulnerable. And that these three individuals are also categorical. Yes, we care about the individual woman who is vulnerable in many ways. We care about the individual child who is vulnerable without parental care. And we care about the convert and the refugee and immigrant. Um, but it is not only that in that specific individual, it is also these categories, the Mafarshim, the great commentators explain, that go beyond those specific categories into the broader sense of those who are not cared for, those who are neglected. Those who are vulnerable. Those who are vulnerable. And it is very easy for us to forget that they are the center of our religious compass, the center of our spiritual mandate. It's so obvious to us as Jews at this point, but this was a revolution. This was a revolution that our focus is not on kings. Our focus is not on clergy as the center of the world. Our focus is on serving and supporting. And on taking care of those who really exist at the outskirts of, of society, often literally the outskirts, at least either in terms of poverty or in terms of being newcomers to the society in which we're living. Yes, there's the objective sense, as you pointed to, that might have to do with objective poverty. And then there's the subjective sense of alienation, of not belonging. And those, of course, are deeply interconnected. And so there's a psychological dimension in addition to an activist dimension. It requires of both, both the humanitarian relief, which is direct, and the systemic change of protection. You know, one of the things I think is most interesting is that the impetus for this commandment in the in the verse that we just read is kigerim hayitim you yourselves have also have also been strangers and we see this over and over again in torah in fact it occurs at least one other time in this parsha where the torah tells us take care of the stranger because you were the stranger there's this sense of empathy this sense of putting yourself in the situation of the downtrodden person because our national history, the story we tell about ourselves as Jews is also one of having been the outsider. You know, it's an amazing thing that we never allow ourselves to forget this. This is not just an empty ritual of remembering history. This is a daily revolution of spiritual consciousness for us to know who we are. You know, and as Americans and myself as a Canadian as well, and um, me too, a Canadian and an American. Mazel tov, mazel tov. So it's great, it's great when we hold both. That one of the unique things about the Jew in, in our time period and place is that we are perhaps the only one, or at least a great example of one, that is both the, the insider and the outsider. Hmm. We are a part of the white establishment. Of course, there's many Jews of color, but by and large, American and Canadian Jews have access to everything in government, in business, in various careers and opportunities. And yet, while we have all the power and privilege as insiders, we also have this constant reminder that we are outsiders. The positive reminder that we're outsiders from our tradition and the negative reminders from growing anti-Semitism. And that's a unique role to be in, to, to use to use that opportunity as insiders, but never forget this reminder, Yeah, and it's not unlike the situation that the people of ancient Israel might have found themselves in. They were a comfortable majority people in their land, at least maybe not in Moses's time, but a few generations later. And yet they're telling this story 
of having come out of slavery in Egypt. I'm picturing an ancient Israelite farmer bringing in their crops and bringing first fruits to the temple. And this is a different parsha, but what is it you say when you bring your first fruits to the temple? You don't say, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub God. You say, my father was a wandering Aramean. You say, we experienced slavery, we experienced being outsiders, and therefore I'm here to give thanks. And so Judaism really teaches us with every breath we have, with every day of our lives, that we're supposed to both be thankful for the freedom and the goodness that you have, and also recommit yourself to taking care of those who do need to be taken care of. You know, and then what's remarkable about Mishpatim is that we don't just leave this as an abstract ethic. The ethic then gets concretized into ritual and into, into laws. It might look like these are all very different cases about how we care about injury, how we care about our responsibility with debts and our responsibility with property and with loans. But actually all of this come back, comes back to the same point. You are free and with that freedom, you have agency and moral responsibility. And that plays out in all of your relationships on a, on a familial level, on an interpersonal level, on a communal level and on a societal level. Yeah, and I agree with you. And I would argue that it actually even goes a step further. Those are not only important responsibilities, but they're actually godly things to do. And, and that's also reflected in the passage. I'll just read the very next verse, which says, if you do mistreat them, I, God, will hear their outcry as soon as they cry out to me. So there is this sense of God as having um, a pathos, to use language from Abraham Joshua Heschel, that God cares about, God feels compassion for. And therefore, when we act in these compassionate ways, we're actually acting in godly ways. We're not just following the laws. We're doing what God would do. We're bringing God's self into the world around us. That's beautiful, Reb Micah, because um, yes, there are the Maimonidean among us who don't like to think of God in the emotional realm. But this Pusuk itself that you just read from itself describes God in emotional terms. V'chara api v'harati atchem that if you mistreat the foreigner and the widow and the orphan, God is angry. Mm -hmm. God is angry. And so too, we should be angry. We should have righteous indignation when we see this abuse. And so too, on the flip side, we should, as you said so powerfully, um, bring that godly presence into this. And that's what makes it spiritual and religious and not only ethical. You know, it's interesting. We have a bracha we make on rituals, ben adam lamakom, but we don't make a bracha on ben adam raud. That is to say, we make a bracha on rituals that we perform that are between us and God, right? Ritual yeah. actions, but not a not a blessing on ethical actions. Yeah. When you put on tefillin, you say a bracha. When you make kiddush on Shabbat, you make a bracha. Right. But of course, you don't make a bracha when you're about to give tzedakah or you're about to help a homeless person or you um, you visit someone who's sick. You might say a, a tefillah, some prayer or something, you know, but and there's so many different explanations we can offer. But I think one here, which you, which you touched on, is that it is so obviously godly. Right. In the ritual, it's not obviously godly that I'm doing this random act, a seemingly random act. So I have to remind myself this is godly. But when I am engaged in acts of chesed, when I am doing halach to bedrachav, when I am imitatio dei, I'm emulating God's compassion. It is so obviously godly that I don't need the kavanah, I don't need the intention, 
to remind myself it's God. And we might have thought the opposite. We might have thought that putting on tefillin or lighting Shabbat candles, those are the most godly things. But in fact, treating others with care and kindness and chesed, that's the godliest thing that we can do. We'll wrap up our Parsha discussion with that gorgeous thought. And when we come back after a very short break, we're going to talk more about how to put these ideas into action. Hey there, Rabbi Micah Streifer here. I want to invite you to continue the conversation in our new Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search 7-Minute Torah Listen and Discuss. Then you can join the group and join the conversation. See you there. All right, we're back with Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's continue this conversation, if you don't mind. Uh, let me now introduce you a little more fully um, since we've got a few more minutes to talk, as I spoke a mo- about a moment ago, you are the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash, which is an organization located in Phoenix, Arizona, that is focused around learning and around social justice. And I know that one of the areas of your work that you're most proud of and that you find most important is your social justice work. So since we're talking about social justice in Torah, let's continue this conversation. And let me ask you about the kinds of work that you're doing in the community that flow out of this. And, and how is it that the kinds of ideas that we're talking about here in Torah then find expression in your rabbinate and in your work in the world? Thank you so much. I would say there's really two uh, unique angles to what we're trying to do. The first unique angle is our belief that learning has to lead to action. Now, that may sound obvious to many, but in the Jewish world, we, we have many learning institutions which don't touch the realm of action. And we have many action groups of various kinds which really don't touch learning. They might you know, talk about Jewish ideas, but to be immersed in learning and in action and to try to figure out how those two relate to each other is one of the unique things we're trying to do at Valley Beit Midrash. And the second is our really deep belief in religious pluralism. I don't mean that in terms of tolerance. I don't, I, I, I don't mean that we can just coexist with each other, but a real belief in the plurality and multiplicity of epistemic truth and our ability to be humbled and courageous and exploring truths beyond the ones that we most, most often affirm. Now, that may sound like it leads us down a rabbit hole of, of moral relativism, but the goal is to try to be morally robust while being theologically, um, theologically open. You, you've preempted all my questions that I had prepared <laughs> for this for this conversation. So let me let me let me ask you about the first part of that, and then about the second part of it. Um, you talked about how learning and social justice work together, and I imagine that's both in your organizational life and also in your own life as a rabbi and. A, social activist, are you finding within your organization that the people who, who come to you for learning are, are looking for both? Are you finding that the activists and the learners are the, same, are the same people? Are you able to take what you talk about in the classroom then out into the world and, and express it in, in action? Thank you. So when, when things are left naturally, I find that they're naturally separate audiences. There are people who feel called to a rally or a vigil or to humanitarian work. And in my experience, that's generally a different person from those who wanna come to a lecture or class or the like. Um, However, when we cultivate intentional experiences like a fellowship, 
we find there to be a deep hunger for that intertwining. And our belief, you know, it says in Kiddushin with Rabbi Tarfon and Rabbi Akiva, what's greater, learning or action? And the conclusion there is learning is greater because it leads to action. But sadly, we don't always see that as the case. Learning can be entertainment. Learning can be interesting. Learning can be meaningful. But it doesn't necessarily charge people to act. And so that's kind of the revolution we're looking to spark is that to be a Jew means we constantly have to be immersed in both of those. That's actually the lesson of this passage from the Parsha as well, that to be a Jew is to take care of those who need you, is to care for the widow and the poor and the orphan and to live in to live those values in the world. Yes, exactly. And yet it may sound simple. Good, I'm going to care for those. Actually, it's incredibly complex, right? Um, how do you care for a yatom? A yatom, an orphan. So one of the organizations I founded is actually called Yatom. And it is a Jewish organization supporting families that are embarking upon foster and adoption. And it's incredibly complex to figure out how to support those children and those families. Part of my work is down here at the border, the U.S.-Mexico border. And we, over the last two years, we've supported about 50,000 to 60,000 asylum seekers. And it's incredibly complex to figure out how to support that population. So it might sound easy. Great, go stand up for these, these groups. But if we don't just want to engage in performative um, activism, but we actually want to affect lives, uh, it's going to require an enormous amount of learning and listening. Is there a Jewish way to care for orphans? Is there a Jewish way to stand up for immigrants at the border? I think there is. I think there is, and I think we do a disservice to Judaism when we simply immerse and assimilate into movements. I, I think there's a few things we bring unique to the, to the picture. <clears throat> Number one, I think we bring the process. That, that, that's not to say we exclusively bring any of this, of course, but I think that our Jewish intentionality says we don't just want to win as, win as a conclusion. We care about the holiness of the process. Tzedek, tzedek, tirdof, justice, justice you shall pursue, justice as an ends and justice as a means. We need to bring the right midot, the right character traits to the process of social change. So that's the first thing. We have to bring our Jewishness to how we do it. Number two, I think that we learn from our Talmudic tradition to be engaged in a dialectical tension. We don't just bring absolutes and that can lead to extremism on any end. We bring constant struggle and tension and dialectical arguments. That's part of our commitment to pluralism in how we think about the complexity of issues. That's number two. And number three, although I can say more, I think has to do with our spirituality, that, um, that we bring our own spiritual expansiveness into this work in a way that not only makes it sustainable for us, it's not secular work, we have a spirituality that sustains our commitment. It, it also builds community. It bonds us together in the work. And I think it also humbles us. And I think also that it, it enables us to, um, to tap into our own vulnerability, that we don't just help them out there, but we also see that we ourselves are the people who are vulnerable as well. And we tap into that deeper existentialism in order to go even further. The last thing I would say is, I don't think as Jews we can ever dismiss anti-Semitism. So I think one of the other things we bring to advocating for other groups and working with other groups is our own pride and self-respect that we stand up for Jews in that process of coalition building. 
Yeah, thank you for all of that. It, I, I'm so moved by this idea of social justice as a spiritual practice. It reminded me actually a, a, another story from the Talmud, which is the very well-known story of Hillel teaching Torah while standing on one foot, uh, where uh, a person comes before Hillel and, well, first he goes to Shammai and asks this question, uh, you know, teach me the whole Torah while standing on one foot. And Shammai chases him out of the room with a builder's trowel. And then when he comes to Hillel and asks the same question, Hillel says, what is hateful to you, do not do to another. That is the whole Torah and all the rest is commentary. Now go and learn it. And so I think that the danger of a story like that is the boiling down of Judaism strictly to the golden rule. Just treat other people like you want to be treated. That's it. That's all there is. But that's not what Hillel is saying. What Hillel is actually saying there is that is that, that is Torah and the rest is commentary, which is to say all of the uh, the rituals that we perform, the books that we read, the conversations that we have, the dialectic that we're having right now, this is commentary on the idea that relationships sit at the center. And commentary is really important in Judaism. As, as you know, when you study a page of Talmud, you don't just look at the Talmud, you also look at what all the commentaries have to say. That's how we get to the meaning of the center. If we look at social justice as a Jewish spiritual practice, then these things feed one another. They are Jewish acts in and of themselves, and our our ethical our ethics and our ritual actions. I think they feed one another to create a whole. So I really I, I thank you for creating that picture for me. I love what you're saying there. I love that, and it's pre it's precisely that fallacy, which is why so many young Jews run away after their bar bat mitzvah and don't return because like I got what I need. I I get the basics. I got the basic ethical commitments. Like, okay, I, I, you've given me what I need. I'm, I'm gone, you know? And, and, and I think that actually the opposite is true that actually what Judaism offers is not just some fortune cookie of an answer, care about these populations, now go do it. It, it offers us a depth of process of discovery and of learning and of growth that is a lifetime endeavor. You know, Rabbi Dr. Art Green on, on a recent Parsha talked about Atzimot Yosef, bringing the bones of Joseph up from Egypt. And he says, okay, part of it is literal. We bring up the bones of Joseph from Egypt back to Israel. But the other part is, he, is Atzimot is your essence and Yosef is extra. You bring your extra essence that as we journey from Egypt to Israel, we are growing into ourselves. We are adding an extra bit of essence of ourselves as we journey. And I think that's true in our lives today too, that we are in a process of discovery of external discovery and internal discovery. And um, that in our service of others, we're also um, revealing our, our ourself and growing in that process as well. And so that spiritual dimension is not only sustaining our commitment, it's also deeply nourishing ourselves. And speaking of learning, I want to come back to the pluralism idea that you raised earlier. Now, you're an Orthodox rabbi, and you run a pluralistic organization for Jewish learning. In fact, I'm pretty sure recently, I couldn't find it as I was preparing for this, but I'm pretty sure I saw a social media post where you invited Orthodox rabbis to come learn with reformed Jewish thought leaders. So talk to me about the pluralism. Talk to me about why this value is so central to what you're doing in your learning and in your, and in your rabbinate. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much. So I think there's really uh, three dimensions to this pluralism. I think there is number one, peoplehood. We are a people and we need to hold Klai Israel together post Shoah. I mean, even without the Shoah should be important, but as a people of a shared history, a shared memory, a shared fate and destiny, 
we are a people and we and we have a responsibility to take care of each other and to hold ourselves together when people are trying to divide us. I, I, I have experienced in the Orthodox community, people shaming non-Orthodox. I've experienced in, in the reform world, people shaming the Orthodox and, and everything in between. And we don't need that. It doesn't, we don't, no one gains from that. So I really believe in us holding each other together. The second level beyond peoplehood is Torah. I think the Torah is greater when we have more ways to read it, more ways to interpret it. We have more beauty from, from the diversity of ways we can engage with it. But the third, and I think the deepest, is really um, epistemic. It's really at the foundation of what truth is. And, our, uh, and when we understand the complexity and the ambiguity and the uh, uncertainty of what God is and what truth is, and we humble ourselves with such a notion, I think that it brings us back to our own commitment of seeking beyond what we know. And, and, and I think lastly, that it comes from my own experience. I have been so enriched learning from the ultra-Orthodox, learning from reform, learning from open Orthodox, learning from conservative renewal, reconstructionist, secular academics, the whole gamut that I can't imagine how someone could have a Jewish learning experience that wasn't eclectic. It feels to me like it's not Judaism. What it becomes is denominationalism. It becomes one little prism into a Jewish understanding. Whereas I think we need the fullness of our history and the fullness of our of our current moment. And, and so I really believe in that pluralism in the deepest way. It's such a wonderful um, explanation of it. I had, a, I had a conversation on this podcast last week with Rabbi Oren Hayon, a colleague of ours, who raised the idea of Shivim Hanim La Torah, that Torah has 70 faces and that we, in conversation with one another, we discover truth. How dare any of us think we know it all? Uh, you know, any of us in terms as individuals or any of us as denominations think that we know it all, that we have a direct access to truth. But rather, I, I really believe, I, I agree with you so completely, I really believe that truth is found almost entirely in conversation and in the openness with which we have to enter into conversation in order to learn from each other. Beautiful, beautiful. I love that. And, um, you know, a, a, as you shared, um, I just last week shared dozens and dozens of, of wonderful Torah from reform leaders and thinkers that have passed through our Valley Beit Midrash, encouraging Orthodox colleagues to listen, because I think that um, it, it's good for us all. And I hope to add more of your Torah, including what we have here to that database as well, that learning library. Um, and I've been so privileged to have been able to publish with CCR Press um, and, and attend CCR gatherings. And I, I value those colleagues so much. It might look like, oh, this is, this, these are such different worlds, but it's the narcissism of small differences. We have so much in common as Jews and as rabbis that the, the, the smaller bits of our differences um, are pretty minuscule. And whether we look at pluralism through the eyes of Rabbi Dr. Yitz Greenberg or Rabbi Dr. Eugene Borowitz or uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel uh, or other Hasidic linkers, thinkers, there are so many different channels of how we can tap into this. And I, and I think it's for, it's for all of our game. Well, and that maybe is why one of the primary modes of Jewish writing for thousands of years now has been commentary, because we all have something different to say. We all have our own Torah and our own way of understanding Torah, which actually leads me nicely to um, talking about the books that you've been working on recently. Now, when I went to your website, I discovered that you are the author of dozens of books, or maybe over a dozen books at least. And some of the most recent books you've been 
you've been working on have been these social justice commentaries that you um, have published through the CCAR Press. That's the Central Conference of American Rabbis, the Reform Rabbinical Association. And um, and in particular, I was looking at your your social justice commentary on Jonah, the book of Jonah, and on Pirkei Avot, which is the Talmud's tractate of ethical pithy sayings that the rabbis want to share with us. So will you tell me what is a social justice commentary? Thank you for asking. Well, let me tell you what it's not. What it's not is a perfect continuation of what the commentators have already done. It is attempting to be a new project. What it also is not is um, just a reading of the New York Times. It's not just looking at every current event today and telling us the most cutting edge approach we must take. What it is, is an attempt to engage our, our, our holy texts in a, a new way through the prism of our moral responsibility and a, a prioritization of the vulnerable, exactly what we've been talking about today, um, in a way that these texts can truly speak to this moment, this moment, I don't mean 2022, but really this era that we find ourselves in, this very unique era in Jewish history, um, and how we can and how we can really actualize this moment. And so the first book with CCAR Press was the commentary on Pirkei Avot. The second was on this book of Jonah. And the third one coming out uh, really any week, I think, is a commentary on the book of Proverbs, Sefer Mishlei. And each of these is very different. And yet the common thread is that each ritual, each text ultimately is working to break the callousness of our hearts and working to expand our consciousness towards those issues of vulnerability and responsibility. Yeah, and if I can just give one very brief example, this is from your social justice commentary on Pirkei Avot. I opened it up to the very first page. This is Pirkei Avot 1-1, which for those who know the text is the list of the transmission of Torah. Moses received Torah at Sinai and transmitted it to Joshua and Joshua to the elders and to the prophets and so on and so forth till it gets to the rabbis. So this is the rabbi's way of explaining how they received Torah and how they became authorized to then teach the rest of us how to be Jewish. You took it in a, in a little bit different direction. You, you understood this to teach us that Torah's primary focus is on human relationships, that rather than saying Moses received Torah from God, Pirkei Avot starts by saying Moses received Torah from Sinai. And Sinai is a moment where we all stood together so that that focus on relationships then becomes an impetus for the kind of social justice work that we as Jews are, are supposed to be doing. And I would venture to say, you can tell me if you agree with this or not, looking at the Parsha, looking at these texts and these ideas we've been talking about, I'm not always convinced that Judaism separates between ethical and ritual. I, I just think that to some extent in the Jewish mind, these are all ways to live your life. And sometimes it ends up feeling like what we call ethics. And sometimes it ends up feeling like we call what we call ritual. But at the end of the day, they're mitzvot. At the end of the day, these are Jewish and godly ways to live in the world. I love that. I love that. I'm also not convinced of the simple binary of what we talked about earlier, Ben Adam Lamakom, Ben Adam Lachavero, the ritual and the ethical side, that, that, that there isn't a very heavy overlap. Um, and, um, and, and I do think that that reminder of relationships is so central. And, and it's a reminder also that it's not only about our actions, it's about our presence. 
um, like you said, in, in terms of how we experience Sinai as well, what you do so powerfully, Rabbi, every day of sit, sitting with people, sitting with people who are mourning or who are sick or planning a life event um, or a family event, it's not just what we do, it's how we just sit and listen, how we are present with people that itself is a testament to this larger ethical commitment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So I know you're short on time because you're heading off to teach. It's what rabbis do. Uh, but I want to ask you two more quick questions, if you don't mind. These are my usual questions for every guest. So I'd love if you could share with us one Jewish practice or ritual. I'm now so mindful of the word ritual that we've been talking about so much, but one Jewish practice that you find particularly meaningful. And then if there's one book, it could be any book that you think we all need to read. Wow, that is hard to pick just one. But I am really called to um, water. I love water, not only the waters of the mikvah, um, but also the hand-washing, the hand-washing ritual upon waking up in the morning, the hand-washing ritual upon washing for bread, the hand-washing ritual of Maya Machronim after a meal, the, uh, the, the focus upon um, our hands, and the sanctification of hands, of how we will use these for good in the day. And I recall the, I, the story of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, lest we forget the ethical dimension, that his students saw him using a very little bit of water washing his hands. And they said, how could you use so little? You need more to wash your hands for this ritual. And he said, no, no, do you see that fellow outside walking up the hill on this cold day? He's going to fetch the water. The more I use, the harder his work is. And so he sees, even in the hand-washing ritual, the ethical dimension behind it. And so I love the power of water. And I don't think we should dismiss it as um, archaic religion consumed with purity. I think it's, it's, an, it's a reminder for us today of the power of sanctification of our bodies and using our bodies for good. Those who like to go to the mikvah, um, whether in the Orthodox world, if it's connected to one's menstrual cycle, um, those who go for conversion, those who go after trauma, um, and those who might go before Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur for the whole body, and then just the power of the hands upon waking up that we are dead in our sleep, the Talmud says. We're partially dead, and we're brought back to life. And that hand-washing ritual is, is an expression of gratitude for our responsibility upon waking up. So I love the hand-washing ritual, and if you haven't uh, experimented with it, any of our listeners, I, 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 I hope you will explore it. And on the book front, wow. Wow, I don't know where to begin. <laughs> um, you know, I do want to point friends to CCR Press's amazing books. There's so many great things coming out of CCR Press all the time and that I hope friends will check out. Um, and um, I've been moved by um, uh, so many of my teacher's works. Let me just pull a few things off the shelf here. Um, this is always my favorite part as my guest goes off to search their shelves to find the best book to share with our listeners. You know, I, I really think that what has been so formative in my thinking has been Orota Kodesh, um, the works of Rav Kook, the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi of pre-state Israel, um, who was a pluralist. He was a chassid. He was a, um, a community leader and builder and was a very different kind of chief rabbi than what we see in Israel today, which I think has made major errors in regards to pluralism and other, other issues in regards to the formation of the modern state of Israel today. And 
I think you can, Rob Cook's works can be accessed in English as well. But I think he offers us a really spiritually rooted pluralism. He offers us a, um, an, a deep reminder of how our universalism and particularism are intertwined. And he shows us how the holy sparks are everywhere in all that we do as a good Kabbalist would do. And so um, while I love the contemporary works that emerge, nothing has matched for me um, the works of Rav Cook from, from, from a few decades ago. It's a beautiful idea. He was a, a great thinker, a really interesting leader, someone who was both forward thinking and also deeply rooted in tradition, cared about people, cared about ideas, um, or wrote HaKodesh by um, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook. Thank you for that suggestion. Thank you, Rabbi Mike. I, I hope you continue all your amazing work. It's been an honor to have this conversation with you today. Likewise, uh, Rabbi Dr. Shmuley Yanklowitz, I want to thank you for spending some time with me, and I, I appreciate your wisdom. Thank you so much. Same to you. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. And my thanks to Rabbi Dr. Shmuley Yanklowitz for talking with me about Torah and law and ethics and ritual and everything in between. I'll look forward to seeing you again next week as we make our way into the heart of the book of Exodus. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to 7-Minute Torah. If you enjoyed this program, please leave a review or a comment, and please pass it on to a friend. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week.